Amen. Amen. All right. Hey, good morning, everybody. I uh, told first service that uh, about the end of the sermon, I was like, wow, I did not know this was going to be as heavy uh, as it turned out to be. So uh, let's just uh, breathe in now. It's okay. We will get through this together. Uh, my name is Matt, by the way, if you're new. Uh, I'm not the normal preacher, so you can take hope in this. Pastor Chris and Alex uh, do say hello. They are on a vacation uh, right now in the middle of a sabbatical. Not all sabbatical is vacation. Uh, it's a time of rest and just reorienting our, uh, our attention, our affection, our devotion to King Jesus and our intimacy with him and with one another. And so we are so grateful that they have an opportunity to do that this summer and that you as a church have the, uh, the, the wisdom to be able to offer that to your pastor. It's such a beautiful thing. And so uh, my name is Matt, one of the pastors here at Vertical as well. It's a pleasure to be with you as we continue our journey through the book of Esther in a series that we're calling Fractured People, Flawless God. And so all throughout this remarkable Old Testament story, we are reminded of how dire and how hopeless our fractured situation is apart from God's flawless plan. So last week, uh, we continued to see God's plan unfold here in the pages of Esther. Uh, you may remember we wrestled through this idea that the intersection of God's plan often resides at the center, the crossing of the roads of his providence and our preparation. His providence and our preparation. To illustrate this, I brought us to the story uh, further back in the Old Testament, the story of Joseph. Uh, Joseph was sold into slavery, and in his words, he indicates that, yes, indeed, his brothers sold him into slavery, man's action, but God brought him there to save the Hebrew people, God's providence. And so we concluded that providence is not just sitting back and enjoying the ride, but rather God calling us into his redemptive story through practical roles as his providence is revealed to us. Now, not only did we see this displayed in the life of Joseph, but we also saw this displayed in the story of Esther, as she clearly showed up on the scene in chapter 2 as a beautiful woman who had been given beauty apart from any effort of her own, and that beauty resulted in her being selected queen of Persia. But it was pretty obvious last week that it wasn't her beauty alone that got her to progress in God's plan. Esther simply didn't sit back at the Susa sunbeds and just wait for her name to be called. No, she put in effort. She exercised cunning wisdom and preparation to find herself directly in God's plan as queen of Persia. God's providence, Esther's preparation, all at play to produce the necessary progression towards God's flawless plan of redemption. And when we pay close attention to this, guys, we see this happening in our own lives all the time, don't we? God's provision, his providence, our preparation, our playing a part of his plan. And now if last week was a story of what can happen when we prepare for God's plan and reside in God's providence, today's story is the opposite. So this morning, we're going to see the result of a previous man's abdication of responsibility who's not even named in this story, and yet the result of his flaws are playing out in our story today, and a generational sin that results in today's evil plot in our story and the introduction of our villain, Haman. 
And so if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn with me to the tail end of chapter 2 as we pick up where we left off last week in verse 19. Now before we dive into our text, let me just briefly bring us up to speed on the situation that we're finding ourselves in verse 19. So the land is Persia. The modern day stretches of this land, if you were to look at a map, would be from Pakistan in the east to Sudan in the west. Uh, the king is Ahasuerus. He is a, uh, a king of kings. He's got a firm reign. He has the largest army, or at least he used to. Uh, but his victories are slim. He's lost a battle to the Greeks. And now we see, too, that he's banished his queen, Queen Vashti. But now he's looking for a little bit brighter future. And as we pick up in Esther chapter 2, verse 19, everything seems to be pretty good for this king. Things are picking up for this king and queen. But almost immediately, we're going to see the introduction of an evil interlude to our story with the close call that this king has with two would-be assassins who plan to take his life. So let me read for us Esther chapter 2, verses 19 through 23, as we see this, this assassination attempt and the results of a loyal servant who just so happens to be in the right place at the right time and in what is another example of God's flawless plan. Esther chapter 2, verse 19. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Oswaris. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to the queen, uh, Queen Esther, and she told uh, the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So last week I made the comment that the fact that Mordecai's here was either highly coincidental or just plain providential, right? It's just either incredibly coincidental that Mordecai happens to be of the family lineage that's brought out of Jerusalem in the exile under king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, and dispersed into all corners of the 127 provinces that he just so happens to land up in the winter capital of Persia, the city of Susa. But now we add to the evidence of coincidence not being an option here. But not only is Mordecai in the right city at the right time, Mordecai is sitting by the right gate in the right city at the right time, and as we see, he's about to make the right move. Again, it appears that God's plan is often crossed by the roads of his providence and our preparation, our action. That is where God's plan resides. And so let's spend a few minutes walking through the scene that we see unfolding here in verses 19 through 20. So Esther has just been uh, crowned queen in verse 17. There's been a feast given her in her name in verse 18. Uh, there's a lot of feasts in the book of Esther. This was one of them, beautiful feast. Uh, but as we see here in verse 19, just because Esther was chosen queen doesn't mean that the king gave up the rest of the beautiful virgins who were gathered from all 127 provinces. 
If you remember from last week, back in verse 14, all the women who went into the king came out and then went into the new group of concubines under the authority of the guy named Shazgaz, or as we'll refer to him today right now, Sleazy Shazgaz, right? So Sleazy Shazgaz is the one that's overseeing all the concubines, but now we see another group. This isn't the same group. These women have not yet gone into the king because Esther stopped that. But verse 19 shows that it's very unlikely that any of the 400 women gathered from all around the empire ever went home. Which, once again, we see the questionable character of this king. And now in the second half of verse 19, we're going to see this king uh, Ahasuerus' character contrasted with that of Mordecai. Verse 19 says that Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Now, why is Mordecai sitting at the king's gate? Well, since we're not told, we can only speculate as to why Mordecai was here, but let me offer some insight that may assist our speculation. Archaeologists uh, tell us that the gate of the city of Susa that we're talking about here wasn't just a simple gate in the wall that you would imagine yourself walking through to get into the palace. No, no, no. This is a massive business and commerce complex twice the size of the footprint of this building. So imagine that. This is the gate complex. This is where everything's happening. Everything's coming into the city. This is where all the business takes place and where all of the commerce enters in. And so while we don't know why Mordecai is here, we can come up with two pretty decent guesses. Either one, this is as close as he can get to his cousin Esther, who's in the king's palace, or two, he has some sort of menial job in the king's lower courts, or both. Now what's important, though, is whatever reason Mordecai is here, God has another reason, a better reason. And we're going to see this in verses 21 through 22. Now, before we move on, I promised last week in verse 10 that we would address what we see here also in verse 20, that Esther did not make known her kindred or her people. So Mordecai is advising Esther, do not disclose your people to anyone in the palace for some reason, which I think we're going to see as our story progresses and so Esther is obviously very respectful of Mordecai. She's eager to do his wishes. And so Mordecai, uh, we get this idea that he's being contrasted with the uh, quick-tempered, whimsical King Ahasuerus as being a measured, uh, respected character in our story. And we're going to see some more reasons as to why it would be unwise to make yourself known as a Hebrew in the Persian courts. But we have to accept the fact that this is what Mordecai has asked and Esther has obeyed. And so nobody knows that Esther is a Hebrew. Now we come to verse 21 in the plot against the king. Verse 21 says, In those days, again, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on Ahasuerus. So Big Finn and Teresh, these are two guys similar to the group of eunuchs that would have gone from the king's court when he was drunk in chapter one to go drag Vashti before the king and all the people that were with him to display her, right? So the same group of guys, these two are the ones that are taking care of the king's gate. Big Finn and Teresh, they're angry at the king. And in a little bit of, of irony here, the author uses the exact same word to describe the king's anger when the eunuchs didn't bring Vashti before him in chapter 1 to describe their anger of the king now. The word is ketzef. 
And in, in this beautiful, funny, ironic situation in chapter one, we see the king's royal rage, and now in chapter two, in chapter sorry, chapter three, we uh, chapter two, we see the the servant's anti-royal rage, and so we have this fantastic contrast here. And let's also miss that not for the second time in as many verses, the author tells us that Mordecai is sitting at the gate, and now we discover why. Not Mordecai's reason, but God's reason. Because in God's plan, Mordecai was to be here at this gate on this day in this city for the purpose of saving the king's life. Let's read verses 22 and 23. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to, the, to Queen Esther, and Esther told it to the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was in, uh, investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on a gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So Mordecai saves the day. The text is very clear who saves the day. Mordecai plays this role. He relays the plot to Esther, who then relays it to the king specifically in Mordecai's name. We're setting up something here. Not only this, but this whole thing is recorded in the records of the king, in the presence of the king. Very important things. And if you know the story, that's actually kind of important later on. Verse 23, we see both of these men hanged on a gallows for, for this would-be attempted assassination. Uh, according to Persian tradition, this isn't the gallows that we think of from Wyoming in the 1800s. This is a pole, right? And this pole is something that they would be impaled on like a giant stake like the Assyrians used to do. Not a pretty scene, kind of gross. And so Mordecai saves the day. And it's in the same irony-saturated storytelling style that we're about to see Mordecai's reward for his royal service. Are you ready to see what Mordecai gets for everything that he's done for this king? Absolutely nothing. Pick up with me in verse 1 of chapter 3. Verse 1 says, After these, these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. And so we're left scratching our heads going, what? Like, wait a minute. Chapter 2 ends with Mordecai being the one that we would think deserves a promotion. He's the hero for saving the king's life. And now the first verse of chapter 3 tells us that Haman gets the promotion? Like, that doesn't make sense. And not only does it appear to be like we got the wrong guy for the wrong promotion, but as we'll learn in a moment, this guy's the sworn enemy of not only Mordecai, but the entire people of Mordecai's uh, heritage. And so quickly, let's put ourselves in Mordecai's shoes here. Just think for a second, as if you're Mordecai. You just did something spectacular. You just saved the king's life from certain assassination. And now your enemy, Haman, gets promoted to the second highest in command in the empire, and you get nothing. You're still at the gate. Aren't you thinking like, hey, come on. Like, foul. Something's wrong with this. And, and if you're putting yourselves in Mordecai's shoes, maybe you've experienced something with, like, this. You're, you're in a position, you've done the right thing, you've, you've sensed God's providence, you've seen the provision, you've made the necessary preparations, and now you're thinking, hey, God, I wouldn't mind a little promotion here. And yet the reality is often the opposite happens. And as we'll see in our story, sometimes God's plan doesn't happen according to our timeline. 
And if we aren't patient, we can easily experience frustration and even doubt that God has a plan at all. I get it. In the fog of war, it's difficult to see things clearly, but let me Roman 8, 28 you. And we know for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Listen, God has a plan for you. And you may not see it now. Hold on, be patient, because God is working things out for you and for his glory. And we will see in this text the story continues to unfold in this way. So, all right, so we're, we're in the weeds a little bit. Let's zoom back out here, and let's look at the big picture. Who is this Haman character, and, and why was he just thrust into the center, the focal point of our attention? I've said it multiple times that Esther is simply one more attempt, one more story of, of man's flaw and God's flawless redemption. Our fractured story, God's flawless plan of redemption. Uh, Next week, as we continue in this series, uh, Fractured People, Flawless God, we're going to take a break from the book of Esther, but continue in the same series. Because again, just to reiterate, Esther is only one chapter in this remarkable story. Pastor Garrett is going to take us uh, from Genesis to Jesus and display the path of God's redemptive plan so that we can get a better understanding of how this fits into that story. And the reason we're doing this, or the reason we're taking this intentional break from Esther next week, is so that we can see clearly that this story is one chapter of a far greater plan. Because listen, from the beginning of time, Satan, since Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the Proto-Evangelium, Satan has been at work to destroy God's people from God's plan. We talked about this last week. Satan doesn't want God's people to succeed, and Haman is Satan's next best attempt to eradicate God's chosen people. So who's this Haman fellow? What's an Agagite? Why are we looking at this feud between Haman and Mordecai? Let's find out. Uh, Some of you are already aware that there are some ties between Haman and Israel's King Saul from nearly 600 years ago. However, as we're going to see in a second, there's even more to this feud, which is going to help us understand the animosity coming and dripping off the pages between Haman and Mordecai. So jot down with me uh, or turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 15. So we'll also be on the screen. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 3. Here's the scene. Now go and strike Amalek. This is to Saul, the king of Israel. And devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them. Kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Let's see what happens in verse 8. But Saul, 1 Samuel 15, 8. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of his sheep and the oxen and the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good, and they would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. Have you ever noticed that when we see in Scripture the words, but God, something spectacular happens? But when we see the words, but man, something really stupid happens? That's exactly what we see here. The Lord commanded Saul to completely destroy the people of Amalek. 
including their king, Agag, which is where we get Agagites. And Esther 3 is a direct result of Saul's failure to follow God's commands. Listen, a simple application, although not the center of our story, is when we don't follow God's commands, guess what? Bad things happen. Now, what's the deal with this nation, the Amalekites or the Agagites? Well, if you were to turn back in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 17, you're going to see a story in verses 8 through 16 that may be familiar to you. Let me describe this scene. Joshua and the people of Israel are fighting this battle against the nation, a nation that attacked Israel. And Moses, Moses is up on a hill with Aaron and her on each side of him. When Moses' hands are raised, you know the story, the battle goes well for Israel. When they're lowered, the battle goes poorly. Well, the battle goes well. Joshua and the people defeat this enemy, Amalek, and his people, and the battle is won. But unfortunately, this war would wage, hence 1 Samuel 15 and Esther chapter 3. So, so here we can trace this feud between Haman and Mordecai, not just to Saul, but all the way back to the time of Moses when the people of Israel had just exited Egypt and were in the wilderness. But listen, this is more than just a feud. This is incredibly personal. This is a family feud. If we were to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 36, you're going to find that Amalek is the son of Eliphaz, the grandson of Esau. And so in this twist that we may not have been expecting. We know that the enmity between Jacob and Esau, one being chosen to bring God's chosen people into the world, one wasn't. The enmity grew between these two brothers and their descendants, Esau's grandchildren, uh, and these were the people that were the first to attack Israel when they left Egypt. There's a very important verse back in Exodus chapter 17 that makes sense of the issue that we see unfolding in Esther chapter 3 between Haman and Mordecai. Let me read Exodus chapter 17, verse 14 and verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this, a memorial to the people, uh, I'm sorry, in a book and recite it to the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Verse 15 says, actually, I want to insert this here. And Moses built an altar and called it, the Lord is my banner. Very important. And then we pick up verse 16. It says, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And so God's promise continues. And we see in Esther chapter three that this war continues as well. And so there's a few more details about this feud that we're going to look at here before we enter our third section this morning. But now that we understand that this, this generational war between the descendants of Esau and the descendants of Jacob uh, is playing into our text this morning, let's pause for just a moment and, and ponder what we could learn from this story. Remember when I said, when we hear the words, but God in scripture, something fantastic happens, but man, something not so fantastic happens let me take you to one of the biggest mistakes of the Old Testament. Back into 1 Samuel chapter 15, now verse 24. Samuel comes to Saul. And Saul says to Samuel, I have sinned. Some translations say, but Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. 
For I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now we're not only half done with our passage here in Esther and we're already seeing traces of a major application of our text this morning. See, when it came down to it, Saul feared the people's voice over God's voice. Saul missed God's plan. He was on the wrong road when he failed to take God's path. And that decision caused severe consequences for God's people. And we're seeing and living in those consequences today in our story in Esther chapter 3. Now we're going to talk a little bit more about this as we close. But I want you to start personally thinking about how you can apply this idea in the text that we see this morning. Because this is applicable to each and every one of us in this room. And I would ask yourselves, ask this question. What responsibilities do you have? You're not Saul. You're not responsible for the Israelite people, but you are you, and you do have responsibilities. What responsibilities do you have, like Saul, that you're abdicating that will ultimately cause chaos for God's people? So we'll come back to that in more depth, but let's continue into our third section of text this morning as we see Mordecai's stand. Esther chapter 3, verse, tail end of verse 2 through verse 6. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. <laughs> then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, so this is repetitive, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see what Mordecai's, if Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. So cats out of the bag, we know that Mordecai is a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. There's our word again, that rage. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they would, uh, uh, so, uh, sorry, for he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. So just like Saul 600 years before, there came a time for Mordecai where he had to decide whether he would follow God's voice or follow man's voice, the man, the king, and his decree. And Mordecai, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego years before, would not bow to any man, but only bowed before God and God alone. Obviously, Mordecai's decision kind of stood out to the others at the gate, and they wanted to know, like, hey, why is this Mordecai, dude? Why is he not bowing down? And so they, they go to Haman, they pass this up, and so they bring this up with Haman. The next time they see Haman, and he's filled with rage that Mordecai would not bow. Uh, again, just to reiterate, there's a family feud happening here. Uh, actually, if you were to go back to 1 Samuel chapter 9, there's a lot of ties here. This is important to understand. We're going to find that Saul's dad is a man named Kish, and we know that Saul is a Benjamite. Do you remember the introduction to Mordecai last week? The descendant of Kish, a Benjamite. And so I don't know exactly how the generations stretched out here, but our author is trying to help us understand that Mordecai is a direct descendant of King Saul who abdicated his responsibility, listened to the people's voice over God's voice, and that has been 
really following these people all the way until now when we have this scene set before Saul's descendant and Agag's descendant, Haman and Mordecai. And so we have a divine family feud playing out on the pages here. We're going to see how this plays out. Uh, So Haman, instead of just seeking to kill Mordecai for not bowing, says, you know what? I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to take care of this, and I'm going to kill everyone. Very similar to the situation we saw playing out that Saul was supposed to do with the Agagite people. You say that escalated quickly, and yes, it did. And we would understand that this only happens because Satan is one more, once more, playing out his latest and greatest attempt to blot out the race of the Hebrew people because guess what? 400 years from now, that's the race that Jesus Christ will be born from to offer salvation for all peoples, crushing the head of Satan. And so this war has been going on since the beginning of time. And we see this continuing to play out. So Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman, which is actually going against the king's command. Uh, it causes Haman to be very vindictive against Mordecai and the entire Jewish population. Uh, when I was studying this week, I really couldn't help but just ponder for a little while. This isn't the central theme of our text, but it's one area we can apply. Is the question is, when is it right to disobey the authorities that God has placed over us? If you're in an MC, I've provided several New Testament passages that really help us understand how we as Christians are to act towards authorities placed over us, particularly in our obedience to them. Uh, And you're smart people, and so I'm going to leave that for you to figure out and to study on your own. If you're not a part of a group, please just email our church office and we'll get you that list of verses to study through. Uh, But I'd really encourage you to consider and talk about what we should biblically do, what it would take for us to defy our government in an action like Mordecai took here in Esther chapter 3. You see, some people would suggest that Mordecai was some kind of insurrectionist, that he was leading a rebellion. And and I guess I have a difficult time seeing that, uh, because if that was the case, I don't think he would have been saving the king's life. And as you really process through this and mull through this, my best advice that I can give you is this. I think you have to answer the question as to where your ultimate citizenship lies. Is it stamped on your passport or is it stamped on your heart? Where is your ultimate living hope? And listen, this is a difficult question to ponder, no doubt. We just came through COVID. It was challenging, no doubt. But I would really encourage some good discussion in your groups this week uh, as you break open these passages that I've provided. Uh, Because, friends, we live in a dark, dark, dark world. And don't think for a second you won't have to contend with this at some point in your life. Let me just say, before we move on, praise the Lord that he has overcome the world. Amen. All right, so we've come through some uh, pretty difficult topics from receiving a, a reward or not receiving a reward that we thought we should with the example of Mordecai and Haman's promotion to resisting the government and, and when the government tries to overrule God and tell you to do something that God has told you explicitly not to. And now let's look at our final section as we turn our attention to this very evil act by a very evil man. So Haman now uses his powerful position to seek revenge on Mordecai and God's people. Let me read verse 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, or Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day. 
and they cast it month after month till the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. So we're now in the 12th year of King Ahasuerus' reign. This is Esther's fifth year as queen. Nisan is the first month of the Hebrew calendar, which translates to April, um, March and April in the Gregorian calendar. So up to this point, we have spread nine years up to this point in our study through Esther. From here until chapter 9, we're going to be in a matter of days. And so everything's about to pick up steam. All the pieces are in place. All the characters set, and things are intensifying. Uh, there was reference to purr, which is a die, which is apparently some sort of casting lots left to chance, lucky number. Uh, that's exactly what happens. They cast lots before Haman all day, all month, all year almost, until the magic number appears, 12th month of Adar. So now Haman has his date, approximately 10 and a half months later. He's going to go to the king and see if he can't, like so many others before him, get the king to sign off on his self-serving plan. Let's read 8 through 9. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. He says, if it pleases the king, let it be declared that these people, that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So Haman now employs the very same tactic that we've seen used several other times. It works. It's the king's kryptonite pleasure. If it pleases the king. Notice that Haman doesn't identify these certain people. He doesn't talk about that. He just immediately zeroes into the fact that they're not actually beneficial to the king. There's no profit to tolerate them. What does Haman have planned for these people? Well, total destruction. This isn't, this isn't punishment. This is eradication. This isn't to re, uh, restore. This is to destroy. And then he finally plays his trump card. He says, you know what, king? I will even pay for it. He offers 10,000 talents of silver. Just to give you an idea of how much that is, Herodotus, the historian, records that 10,000 pieces of silver was nearly one-third of the entire Persian Empire's income from taxation during Darius's reign, the father of our king today. 300 tons of silver. This guy's putting his pocketbook where his mouth is, and he's closing the deal with this king. Obviously, I think we would reckon that he's probably a pretty smart businessman, and he knows that when they destroy all these people and they take all of their possession, he will make his money back tenfold, but he's willing to make a significant down payment for this to happen. Again, a family feud that can only be uh, described by hatred and Satan's plan to kill God's people and to eradicate God's Messiah. Verses 3 through 10 now show us how this plays out. So the king took his signet ring from his hand, gave it to Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you. The people also do with them as seems good to you. And so the king, in the, the ultimate act of abdication of responsibility, he gives his signet ring, the authority of his office, his signature to Haman to do with it as he pleases. Not only that, and it looks like he's giving Haman the Persian credit card, right? So he's saying, hey, you've got this evil plan. You know what? Hands off. I'm okay with this. You just go do whatever you want to do, whatever pleases you. Just go have fun, Haman. And you know what? 
Here's something we can learn from this, and we'll talk about this thoroughly in just a second. But even though you can walk away from your authority, as Ahasuerus does here, you can walk away from your authority. You can give it to another. You can never walk away from your responsibilities. You've probably heard the quote said that, uh, I think it was Edmund Burke said, that the only thing necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. That's exactly what's happening in this situation and his failure of duty leads to our final bit of text this morning as we see this plan unfold. So let's read verses 12 through 15. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. It's the month of Nisan. And an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governors of all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples to every province in his own script, and to every people in its own language. It was written in the name of the king Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to kill, destroy, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Verse 14. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by the order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa. The citadel and king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. So Haman has an evil plan. King gives him everything he needs to make this happen. Ironically, the 13th day, again, the details are important, the 13th day of the first month, the month of Nisan, is the day before Passover celebration, the Jewish holiday celebrating God's deliverance from the hands of Pharaoh. And isn't that interesting? On the very eve of a celebration of deliverance from the hands of another angry king and another evil empire, the empire of Egypt, we find ourselves in the exact same spot once again. Just think for a moment the faith that was necessary to celebrate Passover that night in the face of destruction of such a magnitude. Isn't that the reality of our lives? The reality isn't that we're not just on the eve of destruction, friends, of a destruction bringing death. The reality is we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. But God, how accustomed are we to living as if we're on the eve of a proclamation of death, just like the Hebrew people are here in Esther chapter 3? We live as though all is fine. We pretend that we have no need for God's deliverance until we wake up to the reality that we're constantly in desperate need of God's continual deliverance. And friend, if that's you this morning, if, if you're thinking, you know, I can make that decision about Jesus tomorrow, can I just urge you, don't wait. Newsflash, everyone dies. And double newsflash, you don't know when it's coming. There's an edict of death on all of our heads because all of our heads have turned from God and fallen short of his perfection. But God has a beautiful plan, a far better plan than Esther, and the plan comes through the person of Jesus Christ. I should say, don't wait. You don't have 10 and a half months to make that decision. So the chapter ends with 
these letters going out to the empire, bearing the king's signature, saying that in 10 and a half months, it's open season on the Jews, men, women, children, their possessions are the plunder, and chaos settles over the city of Susa, rightfully so. And so while all this ensues, King and Haman sit on the patio and enjoy a drink. All right, so we've covered some ground this morning. When we started this morning, Esther had just recently been crowned king. There's a massive party in her name. Things are looking pretty good. And when we ended, Esther's people are on the chopping block. I titled this message today, Learning to Stand. I think there are many ways, three specifically, that we can pull from this text in learning to do this. One of those ways comes when we consider Mordecai's situation at the gate where we found him standing seemingly at the center of God's plan. Mordecai was resting in God's providence, proving himself loyal by taking actions to stop an assassination attempt against the king. If you remember, we're left thinking that, wow, now that Mordecai has done all this, he's, he's probably in line to get a little promotion, but instead of Mordecai being promoted, his adversary, the generational enemy of his people, Haman gets the promotion. What's the deal with that? Which draws out our first application. We must learn to stand patient in God's providential plan. Stand patient in God's providential plan. Maybe you're like Mordecai this morning. Maybe you've done the right thing. You've sensed God's providence. You've done the preparation. You've performed exactly how you were supposed to, and yet, no promotion. We were reminded by the words of Romans 8, 28, and the truth that God does not, does indeed have a plan for your situation, and yet sometimes, listen, God's timing is not your timing. We want the microwave dinner option, and God's the Michelin star chef over here cooking up something beautiful. And we're just too, uh, too selfish, too in a hurry, too in a rush, to wait for his beautiful plan. May I just encourage you this morning that if that's you, if that's you this morning, have some patience. Breathe in and smell the aromas coming from God's kitchen. There's something beautiful coming for you. We know that on the authority of scripture. Let's stand patiently in God's providential plan. Secondly, we must learn to stand convictional in biblical precedent. We were challenged this morning with a situation where Mordecai refused the order of an empire. Now, this may not be entirely applicable to you today, but I assure you, in your lifetime as a Christian, you will need to consider the biblical precedent in the passages that we provided to your group leaders, and we'll get to you if you seek them out. Uh, when it is it acceptable, and when it is, it is not to stay standing when a government tells you to kneel. So I'd encourage you to consider that week, uh, that this week, to stand convictional and biblical precedent. And then finally, where we'll spend most of our time in application this morning is learning to stand firm in our responsibilities. Uh, this is perhaps the most applicable lesson that we learned this morning as we have seen the examples of what can happen when someone tries to turn their back on their responsibility. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, you can delegate, you can neglect your authority, but you can't avoid your responsibility. Uh, Saul delegated his authority to the people when he listened to the people's voice, not God's voice, and the results were staggering. 
that not only did Saul lose his crown, but his disobedience threatened the people, his people, the people of Israel for generations, even 600 years to this story today. Ahasuerus did the exact same thing when he abdicated his responsibility to protect his people in the most basic way, and he gave up his human authority to Haman, yet he did not walk away from his responsibility. So it's on this idea that I want to draw out some final ideas of application for us this morning, because we all, whether we know it or not, have a certain level of responsibility in different areas in our lives. So nobody gets off the hook this morning. Sorry. Uh, Each of us has a certain amount of responsibility And the question I'm asking you right now is, are you stewarding this responsibility well, or are you abdicating this responsibility to another? Because listen, just as we've seen in our story this morning, abdication of responsibility can have staggering results for generations. I was thinking about this a lot in the context of our church this morning. Guys, we have been given a church that has a remarkable biblical DNA, a remarkable biblical mission and mandate to glorify God by making disciples in one of the most progressive and godless societies in our country, maybe even our world. The way in which we handle this responsibility, friends, will have lasting impact for generations. And perhaps the question we all need to consider this morning is how will, you, how will we handle this responsibility, your responsibility as a member of this congregation? Are we going to take that responsibility lightly? Are we going to assume somebody else is going to pick that up? Are we going to w- listen to the wisdom of man, much like Saul did? Or will we stand unapologetically and convictionally in God's plan and his word? Because your answer, our answer to that question will impact generations to come. Now allow me to just give this final encouragement and some practical next steps. Uh, This summer, your leadership team, we've been taking uh, this responsibility of making disciples and preparing for that very seriously uh, because of the urgency with which God has spoken to us in his word to be the best church that we can at making disciples. I know many of you are asking the question, hey, how do I become a disciple? How do I get discipled? How do I disciple someone? And first, I just want to say strongly, as firmly and as authoritatively as I can, that you cannot rely on a discipleship program or a system to flawlessly make disciples. You hear it every week. The Great Commission does not say go out and make systems and policies and procedures and plans and all these ideas about how to make disciples. No, it says go make disciples. So my short answer to you is this. Do you know something about Jesus and what he has commanded you? Then go show someone. Do you know someone that knows more about what Jesus has commanded us and shows it in their lives better than you? Then go ask them to show you. That's seriously how simple this is. Now, I know I said that no system is flawless and you cannot rely on a system to make disciples, but, but guys, that's the step. That's maturity in Christian walk. 
And so we as a church, we believe that discipleship is far too important, far too central, far too pivotal in God's flawless plan of redemption to leave this to chance. So we are working right now on ways that we can support you in this and making disciples. Uh, in a few weeks, we're going to have a training session. Uh, and, and if you're interested in coming to this, I would plead with you to consider this where we're going to break down exactly how we see God calling us to make disciples in this church, in this time, in this place, in this culture. This fall, we're going to be working our best to disseminate this plan to each and every person of this church as we seek to be the absolute best that we can at making disciples with gospel urgency because, guys, we don't have 10 and a half months for this edict to take place. It could be tomorrow. That's why God has given us gospel urgency on mission. So here's my one thing for you this week. It's very simple. Uh, if you sense responsibility as being a disciple maker, if you sense that God's calling you into that to say, I am responsible to make disciples that make disciples, I want to lead in that, would you do me a favor? In fact, do yourself a favor. Have a front row seat to God's flawless plan. I'm just going to give you one thing that you have to do. Outside in the foyer, the welcome team has a bunch of little cards. Those are nothing special about those cards. Just put your information down so that we can get in touch with you and invite you to this first training and just say, I want to learn how to make disciples. I want to be discipled. Start the process. Take the step. Uh, I would argue that if you don't do that, you're probably not being made into a disciple I'm not saying that that's a flawless plan. I'm saying that's a step that we all need to take as we learn together in this church at this time, in this context, in this place, at such a time as this, that God's called each and every one of you here to be responsible in making disciples. So Pastor Garrett is going to share a little bit more at the end of the service on how we can do that. But for now, uh, let me just let that rest, let that sit. Uh, I know I said at the beginning this is a little bit heavier than I expected, but guys, isn't this fun? Think about the joy that we get to experience as we get to have a front row seat, just like Esther, just like Mordecai and God's redemptive plan for his people, which continues to this day in this church, in this city. Let's pray.